Hey, everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. When you leave today, you may not feel like you've heard a sermon because probably more than any other message that I'm going to bring, this is kind of a talk. It would be like the kind of talk that we would have with each other if we were sitting in your house or my house or in your office or my office, just friends who follow Jesus, having a talk about one of the toughest issues in life. In the almost 37 years that I've been your pastor, I've done, well, this is the third lengthy series that I've done on the life of Joseph. Almost 25 years ago, I did like a 17-week series called Living a Functional Life in a Dysfunctional World. It's kind of a quirky title, but it does sort of sum up Joseph, doesn't it? And then back in 2010, I think it was, I did a series called Thrive, on the life of Joseph. And I've, I've preached a lot of individual messages. I've spent a lot of time in the life of Joseph. And there are a lot of things that amaze me about him because Joseph kind of ran the table and just sort of did everything right. I'm, in, I'm attracted to his story for that reason. But when I look at the life of this extraordinary human being, there is one thing about him that amazes me most. And that is that he didn't become bitter, angry, distrustful, or negative. It would have been so easy. I mean, we've already talked about a lot of the things that happened in his life. He was innocent in all these situations. He was always trying to figure out how to add value to people's life. But even though he was innocent, his brothers hated him. They hated him so badly that they wanted to kill him. And then at the last minute, they said there's no money in killing him. Some slave traders came by and they sold him, sold him. And then after he was carried away to Egypt, he found himself a slave in the house. I guess the closest equivalent we would have to it in our culture is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the top military man in the country. He became his slave, but Joseph was so blessed of God with favor that he rose through the ranks until finally this man had him overseeing his entire operation, which was extensive. But then when the man's wife claimed that Joseph tried to rape her, still innocent, of course, he was thrown into prison for probably 10 years. And then when he thought he might get a chance to get out because one of the king's top guys wound up in prison and Joseph interpreted his dream and the man promised to remember Joseph, he wound up being forgotten for two years longer than that. How how did he keep from becoming bitter? Bitter at his brothers, bitter at Potiphar, bitter at Potiphar's wife, bitter at this man who forgot him, bitter at God. Because if Joseph had chosen to, he could have said, well, God let all these things happen. And yet when I read the 13 years of Joseph, I mean, 13 chapters about Joseph's life, he's always looking to the future. 
whether he's sold as a slave or in prison, locked away, forgotten. He, he always is looking to the future. He still believes the best, even wanting to take care of the people who've hurt him. And like I say, when I look at the life of Joseph, that's the most amazing thing to me. That's what we're going to talk about today. Like I said, I don't know when you walk out of here, you may be like, well, I went to hear Mark or I went to New Spring and I don't know that we heard a sermon and you might be right. We're just going to talk for a few moments about how not to become bitter when people hurt us. Well, first of all, what does that mean? What are we talking about when we use the term bitter? Bitterness comes in our lives when anger and hurt don't leave. Bitterness comes when anger and hurt don't have an off-ramp. I've talked to you before. I have an anxiety disorder. You know what makes an anxiety disorder an anxiety? Because all of us have anxiety. But you mix that with ADD, and the problem is whatever is worrying us doesn't have an off-ramp. There are a few of you who know what I'm talking about. Bitterness comes when our anger doesn't have an off-ramp. I mean, I know that Joseph had to have moments of anger and frustration. He he wouldn't have been human if he didn't. I mean, he had to be hurt when his brothers wanted to kill him. When his brothers sold him into slavery and laughed while he was being dragged off in ropes, that had to hurt. When he was sold to slave traders, it had to hurt. When Potiphar, the man he had been loyal to, wouldn't be loyal to him, that had to hurt. But he didn't let the pain and anger and hurt turn to poison in his heart. And you're going to hear me say this so many times today, you're probably going to get frustrated with hearing me say it so many times. But to me, this is the, this is the win. He didn't let all these things that happened to him change who he was. Could I say that one more time? And again, I'm, I'm going to repeat it over and over because again, like I say, this is the goal line. He didn't let all the things that hurt him change who he was. All of these hurts in Joseph's life happened before he was 30. He lived over 100 years. So I want to tell you, it was that and his faith in God, which, by the way, are very close together, to set the trajectory for the rest of his life. <clears throat> I mean, here's the bottom line, and please don't leave after you hear me say this because i got more sermon to come, but just giving you the bottom line early. <clears throat> He was saying to his brothers, you can hate me and sell me to Potiphar's wife. You can lie about me and get me thrown into jail for something I didn't do to Potiphar. You can ignore my years of faithfulness and believe the worst about me to Pharaoh's wine guy. You can forget about me after I've helped you, but I'm not going to give you the power to change who I am. I won't let the way you've hurt me change me. And it's a good thing. Because nothing is as toxic in your life and my life as bitterness in our hearts. There's a verse in the Bible that all of us need to keep close by. It's the verse, the quintessential verse in the Bible on bitterness. It's Hebrews chapter 12 and the 15th verse. And the Bible says, watch out. How many of you grew up with, you know, don't read your hand. How many of you grew up with overprotective parents? And that was one of the most common things you heard. You don't watch out. Well, watch out means there's a legitimate reason to be afraid. So the Bible is saying, watch out. There's something you need to be concerned about. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness springs up to trouble you, corrupting many. Well, let's slow down and pull over the side of the road for just a moment. 
Because there's some words here that we need to pay especially close attention. The Holy Spirit doesn't waste any words. Let's start with the word root. Where does a root first start growing? Underground. And that's the way bitterness is. See, the thing of it is, anger is part of our lives and hurt is part of our lives, but we still have to function, don't we? If you've been hurt very deeply, you may feel that hurt in an acute way, but tomorrow morning, you've got to go to work. And you've got to be around people. And I know, I mean, here's the thing. You know, you guys at New Spring, the reason, one of the reasons why you're here is you're sort of a make-it-happen kind of person. You wouldn't choose New Spring Church if you weren't. You guys bring your A-game. That's who you are. But you and I both know it's possible to go to work and smile and meet everybody and do what you have to do and make it happen, and yet deep inside you're dealing with hurt all the time. That's because bitterness grows underground. And the reason why we think it's safe is it's over stuff that has already happened. And we say to ourselves, well, you know, sooner, somewhere down along the line, I'm going to figure out how to deal with my emotions about what has hurt me in the past. Jeremy Sutcliffe was a guy down in Texas who was working in his yard and he killed a rattlesnake. And being a Texan and growing up with my grandfather who had a place in central Texas, the thing we were worried about biting us the most was a diamondback rattlesnake. You know, there are only two kinds of snakes. There are those that will hurt you and there are those that will make you hurt yourself. <laughs> Anyway, he came across a rattlesnake while he was working in his yard, and he killed it, and he cut its head off. And he kept working in the yard, but then he went back to get the parts of the rattlesnake that he killed and to throw them away. And when he did, the decapitated head of the red snake bit him. He had to be life flighted. He was weeks in the hospital. At one point, his organs were starting to shut down a little bit, or at least they were affected. And thankfully, he wound up being fine. But the article, I think this was in 2018, and I think of all places, the BBC, the article said that a dead rattlesnake can bite you for hours. Its reflexes are still operative. And that's how bitterness is. It's underground because it's stuff that's already happened. But even though its head is cut off and the past is no longer with us, it can still bite us and inject poison into our lives. So I think the Holy Spirit had the perfect word with root, didn't, didn't he? But let's go a little further. That verse that we read a moment ago said that if bitterness comes into our lives, it will do two things. It will trouble us and corrupt many. Let's talk about that. Trouble there means harass. <laughs> How many of us know we've had enough experience with bitterness to know that that's exactly what it does? I mean... You can't go to sleep at night because you're thinking about what happened to you. Just like you, you, you can't get any kind of off ramp. And, and how many of you have discovered that a lot of the people who hurt us, for lack of a better word, are actually jerks? It's crossed my mind a few times when bitterness would not allow me to sleep that the person who hurt me was sleeping just fine. And bitterness will harass. You know, someone has said about bitterness, it's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. 
But now for all of us who are parents and grandparents and have people in our life that we love very much, it's this next one that we really need to watch. Because for some reason, the word in our Bibles is corrupting. But it comes from a Greek word which means to stain. It's also the word for dye, like you would dye a piece of fabric. And what it means is this, is if I allow bitterness into my life, I have a sphere of influence. And what will happen is I will stain other people with the hurt that I won't let go away. This is way too sensitive to ask you to respond in any way physically, but let me ask a question. How many of us were stained growing up by someone who was bitter? In 37 years of pastoring here and Years of pastoring before I got that. I mean, you don't make decisions like I do without sometimes people mischaracterizing those decisions. And you guys know whatever you do for a living, you just know that there are going to be people that are, that are going to cause you trouble. And one of the things that I learned through the years was when this happens, I didn't want to bring it home. I grew up a pastor's kid. I have friends that are my age that grew up in a pastor's home. You couldn't get them into church with a gun because when they were growing up, they were stained by bitterness. That's an interesting verse. I mean, Hebrews 12, 15, the Bible says, watch out, lest the root of bitterness springs up, and that's what it will do. And then it says it will harass you and it will stain the people around you. Well, okay. This is a really important message today, I believe, because like Joseph, we've been hurt. We've probably had family who haven't been what family should be. We've probably been lied about. We've all had people ignore the good that we've done and believe the worst about us. And we've been forgotten by people who promise to remember us. Let's not talk about Joseph right now. How do, we, how do we keep that from making us bitter? Well, our series is going pro, coached up, and, and really it's about two things, going pro or just verses from Proverbs, Proverbs. Proverbs in the Bible is the book of wisdom. Mary Alice and I read from it every day. But the coached up part is about the life of Joseph. So really it's a series about two things. Every once in a while we'll look at a proverb that will just give us the, the underlying premise of wisdom and then we'll look at Joseph and see how he lived it out. And the important thing for us is that we get coaching to live in our lives. So today's message, what's left of it, is going to be in two parts. In the first half of the game, we're going pro. We're looking at the book of Proverbs. And I want to give you three or four Proverbs that talk about how to beat bitterness. And then in the second half of the game, we're just going to go to Joseph and we're going to see how he, how he beat bitterness. And set, this set him up to live the last 80 years of his life with great mental health and great productivity. So this is going to go fast. So let's, let's go to work. First of all, we're going pro. We're going to look at Proverbs, the book of wisdom, on the subject of bitterness. And there's a sort of progressive understanding as we go from proverb to proverb. Here we go. Here's the first proverb. Patience is better than power and controlling one's emotions than capturing a city. 
If you and I are going to defeat bitterness in our lives, we have to determine right up front that we are going to control our emotions and not our emotions control us. So many times, back when I used to counsel, I don't counsel anymore, but back in the days when I used to, I would have people say things to me like this. They would say, I can't forgive. Or they would say, and they may not even put it in these terms, but still, this would be the upshot of it. They would say, I have the right to be continually angry because of what's been done to me. And what they're really saying is, I can't move on. What has happened has frozen me in time, and I cannot move on. And while I understand, and those are normal emotional responses, what they're really saying to me is, I am held hostage by my emotions. Now, please hear what I am saying. There's a place for emotions. God has given us emotions. And honest emotions are essential. So the last thing I'm telling you, I'm not telling you that you should deny honest emotions. In fact, if anything, you need to lean into them, embrace them, and work with them. But as important as emotions are, they can never drive the train. I wrote this line many years ago. Maybe it's kind of corny, but it's what I try to keep in my own head as I think about my emotions. Emotions are a fine cushion to land on, but they're a bad platform to stand on. In other words, they're part of our lives, and God has given us our emotions to go through difficult times to help us navigate those. But they never were meant to be the premises that determine the direction that we're going to go. All right, let's take that and let's go to the next level. What the next proverb is going to say is that our future goals, the things that are truly most important to us, are more important than my feelings of hurt. Proverbs eleven twenty three: the desires of good people lead straight to the best. We're going to see this so clearly when we start looking at Joseph's life, but here's the problem. When you and I struggle with bitterness, Our focus is on what's happened to us. Our focus is on the past. And we're going where we're going. So it's important for us to realize that even though we are hurt by things that happened to us in the past, our focus needs to be on where we're going. The Bible says the focus of God's people always lead toward the best. I mean, no matter what anybody's done to me, I need to say with the time that God has given me, and especially the QTL, the quality time left, I need to want to go to the best. And I can't go to the best if I'm bitter. Here's the third proverb, and it's going to tell us this. If I get bitter, we've already seen this, if I get bitter, I could mess up the people I love. In Proverbs 29, verse 8, the Bible says, Scoffers set a city afire, inflaming the minds of people, but the wise turn away wrath. The picture The language is like someone blowing on hot coals to produce flame. Do you have anybody in your office like this or where you work? I mean, the thing of it is everybody can walk in happy and that person can walk in and start talking about the bad things that have been done to them. And it's like blowing on coals and it like flares up. And before we realize it, we have... It affects, okay, I haven't said this before and I don't know if I'll say it at 11.15, so you guys may be the only people who hear it. Isn't it true that there's some people you can't be around because just being around them makes you negative? Do you have people in your life and when you, you know, after you spend a day with them, you find yourself criticizing people and you think, where'd that come from? I'm not a critical person. It's because it's staining. See, and that's the thing. The Bible says that these people can start a fire with bitterness. 
Here's the fourth proverb. It's going to tell us that we can't enjoy life and be bitter. If we've gone through pain, we can either be bitter or we can enjoy life, but not both. In Proverbs 17, verse 1, the Bible says, Better is a dry crust with peace than a house full of feasting and strife. It would be better to live in a tiny studio apartment and have God's peace in your life than to live in a $50 million mansion in Beverly Hills and to be bitter. You don't want to carry where you've been to where you're going. I mean, if you're a Christ follower, you know that God holds your destiny in his hands. And no matter what you've been through, God still wants to take you to the best. Well, have you been hurt? Yes. Have I been hurt? Yes. Many times. But, but my, I have to understand, I don't want to take the baggage of the pain of the past to the place where God is going to take me. File that away. We'll see that in Joseph's life in just a moment. So halfway through, we're at halftime right now for this message. What have we learned? Well, the key to not being bitter is your mindset when you're going through adversity. So how did Joseph pull this off? Okay, we just finished with halftime. The band has marched on the field, and we're going to the second half of the message. Coach Joseph. There are a lot of clues in the 13 chapters about Joseph, how he defeated bitterness. But if we really want to know the ultimate answer, we need to start with a question. So for all of you who are Bible students and you study the life of Joseph, let me ask you a question. What do you think is the high moment, the apex, the, what do you think is the high moment of Joseph's life? Well, somebody might say, you know, when he got the job and Pharaoh gave him the job of running the world. Fair point. That's a possibility. Others might say, well, it was when he got vindicated because all these 10 years he, was, he had this sexual assault charge that he was in prison for hanging over his head and people thought the worst about him. So clearly there was a point where he got vindicated. I mean, let's read a little bit of it. Genesis 41, 41, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand, placed it on Joseph's finger, dressed him in fine linen, hung a gold chain around his neck. Wherever Joseph went, the command was shouted, kneel down. So Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all Egypt, and Pharaoh said to him, I'm Pharaoh, no one will lift a hand or foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. So everywhere Joseph rode in his entourage, in his motorcade, people had to bow down. I always wonder what would have, I mean, I hope God kept this on videotape, or whatever they have in heaven. It's probably way more sophisticated than what we have. I just want to see, you know, here's Potiphar and his wife shopping at Saks Fifth Avenue, and here comes Joseph's motorcade. They have to bow down. So somebody could say, well, I think when he got vindicated, that's the high moment of his life. And there would be those of us who say, well, when his dad found, found out that he was alive after all those years, or when he sees his brother Benjamin and he forgives his brothers, and I wouldn't quibble with any of those. Those are high moments. But in my, moment, in my mind, they're not the best moment. After Joseph gets the job of running the world, he marries a beautiful woman, Asenath. He's living in a fine home. He's got anything he wants. And the day came when Asenath came to Joseph and said, we're pregnant. And months later, they go to the hospital. They were in the birthing suite. And a nurse brings a bundle to Joseph. And he looks into the face of his newborn baby boy. 
I want you to see him at that moment. Because as he looks into the face of that little baby boy, all of a sudden the pain of the past is a distant, distant. Well, I started to use the word memory, but I guess it would be the wrong word to use. It's just too wonderful. I mean, as he holds that baby in his arms and looks into his eyes and thinks about all the things that God has done in his life. But suddenly that moment's interrupted. His press aide comes barging into the room and says, sir, I hate to interrupt, but the media's everywhere. There are media trucks all over the place. The the networks are here, BuzzFeed, New York Times, TMZ, Entertainment Tonight. Trucks are everywhere. They all want a statement on the baby. They want to know the baby's name. And Joseph doesn't even look up. He's still holding that little baby boy and looks into his face and says, we're going to call him Forget. Sorry, sorry you, must, you must have misunderstood the question. It's Joseph Jr., right? No, no, no. We've decided to call this boy Forget. That's a strange name for a kid, although some of us have had kids that we, now that we think about it, <laughs> since they forget everything, and it's not bad. But that wasn't what Joseph had in mind. Let's look at the Bible. And I think we're going to find our first way that Joseph defeated bitterness. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, forget, saying, God made me forget all of my hardships. Here's a lesson. There's a time to let the past go. I'm going to trade carefully here. I don't mean block it out and not deal with it. And I, I surely don't mean not being honest with ourselves about how we've been hurt. Next week, I want to bring a talk on a subject I've never brought a full talk on. I want to talk about Joseph coaching us up on when it's safe to let someone back into our lives. Forgiveness doesn't mean you let an abuser back into your life. I think when a lot of people say, I can't forgive, they misunderstand that, and they think, I can't let this... I can't let this abuser back into my life. That's not forgiveness. That's restoration. How do we know when it's safe to let someone back into our lives? We're going to talk about that. That's that's the talk next week, entire talk. You know what's interesting? I've always said to you, whenever God devotes a lot of ink to a character, there are a lot of lessons there. Well, there are 13 chapters on Joseph, and a whole bunch of those 13 chapters are on this topic of when to let someone back into your life after they've hurt you. So please understand, I'm not talking about not being honest about how badly you've been hurt. I'm just saying there's a point where you say, you know, there's not a lot more benefit in me dealing with this. Back when I used to counsel, oftentimes I would have someone come into my office time and time again. And strangely enough, it tended to be men. And the first time I would get to know them and hear from them, they would want to tell me about what had been done to them. And I'm listening to that, and I'm thinking, okay, you you want me to understand where you've been, and and I want to, and I listen to that. And so the next meeting would be set up, and I would figure, okay, we're going to go from where we were, and we're going to go to the next level of of help. But then when he would come back into my office, he would like want to go all over it again, blow by blow, moment by moment, event by event. And I would realize after about four or five meetings, we weren't getting anywhere because every time we would sit down, he would want to go over every slight, every hurt, every word that was ever said. 
And after a while, there was a picture that began to emerge in my mind. I'm a very concrete thinker. I thought what, the, what this guy is like, it would be like if you had a very magnificent piece of crystal or glass that was a very expensive thing, very, maybe it's the centerpiece of your house, but somehow it managed to break in a hundred pieces, but you couldn't let the pieces go because it had been so valuable. And so you would scoop them up and put them in a shoebox. And then, and, and every day or every week, you would go back into that shoebox and handle the pieces. And when you did, it would cut your hand over and over, and you would bleed. And that's what I thought about that guy that was talking to me. No matter how badly we've been hurt, there is a moment to let that go, because if we don't, it will change the way we interact with the future. I mean, just use your imagination for a moment. Joseph is in the hospital with his wife, and the nurse comes and brings him the baby and says, look, sir, you have a son, and can you hear Joseph say, well, I can't think about that right now. Take him back. I have some brothers who, those dirty dogs sold me. Or take him back. You know, look, sir, a son, take him back. I, I, I can't think about that right now. There's a woman in this town who tried to ruin me. If he had said that, we, we could understand. But which picture had you rather see? Oh, I'm really going to tread gently on this one. But I need to go here. Oftentimes when people can't let go of the past, they become herders. Isn't it true? If you can think about someone who's hurt you, if you could back up in time, oftentimes that person was hurt. And oftentimes the thing they hated the most is what they wind up replicating. So you and I, when we get hurt, it does hurt. And we need to be honest about that hurt. And we need to learn from it. And, and it's a wonderful opportunity to get professional help during that season. But there does come a moment where we need to quit taking the glass out of the box, the broken glass, and those shards. It's time to let them go, to just take it and say, I'm finished with that. Because i got to think about where I'm going. And that's true for everybody, but you and I are Christ followers. So let me go to this lesson. And this is the big thing. This is something, and I promise you, I haven't just taught this. I've lived this in my life. Joseph could afford to forget the pain of the past because of God's grace in his life. Have I been hurt through the years? I mean, it's been a good while, but have I been hurt through the years in pastoring? Sure. And I've actually had people say to me, because oftentimes I would do good things for the people who hurt me, and I've actually had friends ask me, how can you do that? And I've always said, I can afford to be generous because of all the great grace that God has put into my life. So that's what grace does. Grace tells me, sure, I've been hurt, and yeah, I'm honest about it, but God's grace is so rich in my life, I can afford to be generous. Well, that's, that's the first lesson that we get from Joseph. He named the firstborn forget, saying, God has made me forget all my hardships. Let's move on and close this message out. I don't know when it was. Could have been months later. Could have been years later. But Asenath comes back to Joseph and says, we're pregnant again. 
And they go back to the hospital. They go back to the maternity hospital. Now the media is really amped because they saw how he named the first baby. So there are two trucks for every one truck now. And they're just all over the place. By the way, you guys know you're giving me the latitude to have a little anachronism in the message. It's just how I see things. So they're like, sir, what are you going to call this baby? Because he was a boy too. And, and Joseph said, we're calling this one double fruit. What? We're calling him Ephraim. It means double fruit. Look at this. The second son he named Ephraim and said it's because, oh, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering or the land of my adversity. This is really good, but like eating lobster, we're going to have to do a little work here to get the meat out. Okay, remember, this is not a testimony of Ephraim's life. He's just been born. This is a testimony of Joseph's life. The name Joseph and Ephraim in Hebrew are really kind of synonyms. Joseph's name means productive. It means added. I mean, one of the talks that I've done for corporations that has been really popular, and it's not church organizations, just with corporations. I've talked a lot about Joseph when I've taught corporate leaders. I have a talk called the walking plus sign, and a lot of people have loved it. Well, Joseph's name means plus. It means added. It means productive. Ephraim's name means double fruitful, which basically is Joseph. Like, look, I, I came in here, Joseph. I came in here, my name means productive, but I was actually able to be double productive. Okay, we could look at that and say, okay, I sort of get it because now he's running the world. But that's not what Joseph said. Let's make sure we don't miss this. Ready, New Spring? He said, God has made me doubly productive in the land of my suffering. In other words, he said, when I was going through all that pain, even in that season, God was making me doubly productive. Let's slow down for a moment and talk about that expression, land of my adversity. It's one thing to suffer from isolated affliction. A little here, a little there, a bad day sprinkled among good days. But hear what Joseph was saying. He wasn't saying I had a little bad day in the midst of a good month. He was saying trouble was my address. I didn't visit trouble. I lived there. Like I say, a lot of us visit suffering every once in a while. We have bad days. We have a bad month. August was a bad month for me. Didn't get to go on my vacation that we planned because Mary Alice and I got sick. We were sick for a while. And then when I started feeling better, the day before my birthday, I rolled my car and totaled my car. Mary Alice and I just talked about this as breakfast. Like, if we don't see August again, it's not going to hurt our feelings. <laughs> but August is past. I'm feeling great. Mary Alice is feeling great. And I have a new car. I guess the Lord decided Mark needs a birthday present this year. <laughs> yeah. A lot of us know what it's like to have a bad day or a bad month, but some of you, trouble is your address, and you live there. Maybe you have a troubled marriage, or maybe you have recurrent pain, 
Maybe, maybe you have to work on a job where people have it in for you. Maybe you have a mean-spirited supervisor who makes your life a miserable experience or a co-worker because she's envious of you, searches your back for a place to put the knife. Maybe your problems are financial and you dread going out to the mailbox. I know the question you have and the question I've had in those seasons. It goes like this. When am I going to be able to leave the land of my suffering? That's a good question and it's a human question. If we're not careful, we can take the next step to say something like this. You know when all this trouble passes... I'll get back to living. When all this pain lifts, I'm going to find a way to be productive. I love what Joseph said. He said, all those 13 years when I was going through all that trouble, God made me doubly productive. I really believe this is one of the ways that Joseph didn't become bitter because he looked at those 13 years and he said, although people were hurting me, God was working in my life. I said this to you a couple weeks ago. I don't think he's a success running the world if he hadn't been through those 13 years. I'm cautious about what I'm going to say for personal reasons. I don't think there ever has been a church who was kinder and more loving to their pastor than you are. You're too good to me. And you say kind things to me I don't deserve. No pastor ever had a church that loved him more than you love me. But if I have been a blessing to your life and if God has allowed me to add value to your life, here's the part I didn't want to say. The development that allowed me to be a blessing wasn't compiled in the good days. And Lord, I don't want to go through those bad times again. Just say Who's going through the valleys and the struggles and the heartbreaks and the days when I didn't know if the sun was going to come up the next morning. That God was real and he worked and he invested in me. And even though I could look back and look at all the things that people did to hurt me, I can look back and say, look at the things that God did to shape me and build me. And I can look back on that and I can say, God has made me fruitful doubly fruitful in the land of my adversity. This is a heavy talk, isn't it? And it could be that someone watching here online or on television will say, Mark, I don't believe I have the strength to think like that. And you and I don't by ourselves 
but we were never meant to live life alone. The Bible tells us that God loves you. He knows your name. He's got your name engraved on the palm of his hand. He knows the number of hairs on your head, which in my case is giving him an easier job these days. And he loves you so much. He loves you more than anybody else. So God wants to come into your life. But how does a holy God come into the life of a flawed, broken sinner like me? This whole book, as I've said to you so many times before, it's not a religious book. It's a schematic. It's a plan. It's the story of a plan. The story begins in Genesis and ends with Revelation, and it tells how that God sent his son into the world, Jesus, to pinch hit for you. To stand in the batter's box and hit the ball of life in your place. To live that life that you and I can't live. For 33 years, he ran the table, never did a single thing wrong, and then he took that perfect life and laid it on a cross, and the way God saw it, he paid for everything you and I have ever done wrong, and the blood that came out of his body was a currency that paid for every sin and malfunction and spiritual bad moment. And then three days later, he walked out of the grave under his own power with an offer on the table, and it's still good today. And it goes like this. If you will let Jesus Christ take your place, if you will trust that he died for you on the cross and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and if you'll say yes, then Jesus will come into your life and you know you'll suddenly begin to have power you didn't know was available. So here's what I'm going to do. Since the Bible just says ask, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. These aren't magic words, but if you'd like to join me, you can pray with me. So you just say, Mark, I, I want that power in my life. I want Jesus in my life. Okay, well, let's pray. And I'll pray these lines slowly. You can decide if you want to say them. So here we go. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me very much. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. And I believe he arose from the grave. Would you forgive me and make me your child? Thank you for hearing my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just pray with me, I have a gift for you, okay? There's a New Spring Bible in here, and there's a book I wrote. I have ADD, so I don't write long books. It'll, you can read it real fast. Just answer a lot of questions. There's a little journal in here with a pen. It's free. It won't cost you anything. I promise you, we don't have any agenda. We just want to give this to you today. So if you're on campus, you can get it. Right. All you need to do is take your phone out and text the word PRAYED, P-R-A-Y-E-D, to 97,000. If you go to any info center, they're, they're, they have this color on them. They're going to be ready for you, and they'll have this box, and you can take it with you today. If you're watching online or on television, just text PRAYED to 97,000, and then follow the steps, and we'll mail it to you. So, and you said, Mark, I didn't bring my phone today. Just go back and say I prayed with Mark. That works just fine. We'll see you next weekend for the talk that I can't wait to bring. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.